Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Um, we're in chapter 14 today, so open your Bible and turn to chapter 14. In chapter 14, um, really good things um, are there, and it's divided up quite a bit. Um, and so last week, we just plowed through the whole book uh, or excuse me, the whole chapter in one Sunday morning. And I said, you know, if, if we had Sunday night church, the church I grew up in, the pastor would have said, hey, come back for the second half of this message on Sunday night. And, but we didn't have that. So we went all the way through um, chapter 13. Chapter 14, oh man, there's about four messages in chapter 14. So um, we're, we're approaching quickly um, over this next few Sundays, we're going to examine the climax of the greatest story ever told. Right here, we're just going to bite off 11 verses. There are another 20-something verses, um, actually, through, um, through verse, verses 39, actually, probably, that we're going to divide up over the course of the next few Sundays and kind of teach through those, quite honestly. Um, through the communion time or the Lord's Supper, which celebrates the last, uh, celebrates the Lord's Supper in um, uh, replacing the last supper, okay? So we're going to spread those out over the next few weeks so that we don't do a whole nother message on that. And I think it's going to be really good um, as we continue to engage with these elements, the Lord's Supper and the elements right up through what's traditionally called Palm Sunday, okay? So we're just going to look at the first 11 verses today and, um, and examine those. And these, uh, this, this week that we're in the middle of that we keep um, um, dissecting and sort of chopping up is the Passion Week, all right? The Passion Week. And the Passion Week is pretty important. On Resurrection in, uh, Week, Traditionally, from all over the world, pilgrims travel to Israel. They travel to the city of Jerusalem and visit in an effort to experience the drama of, of, that, of that event, the Passion Week. And they retrace Jesus's steps on what's called the Via Dolorosa or the Way of Sorrows. So it's kind of a cool thing to observe. They do all kinds of, there's there's passion plays and things like that, that you can, um, if you visit uh, Jerusalem, if you visit Israel, that you can go to that are pretty exciting and really cool to see. But this Via Della Rosa, or the Way of Sorrows, uh, winds its way from Pilate's court all the way to Golgotha. So uh, during this Passion Week, tons of people visit um, this area, the place where Jesus was crucified. And so Mark as he writes this gospel, he's going to assist us in getting to some, in, uh, some really important things. Now, there's a couple of things I want to remind you of about Mark and the gospel of Mark. I want you to remember or know that Mark is writing this through the experiences of Peter, through the lens of Peter, through all the things that Peter encountered and did. So these are, uh, so Mark is writing this gospel through that lens, all right? 
And um, so when you think of, uh, when, you, when you engage, you're, you're engaging really with Peter more than anybody because Mark is really young. You remember um, that later on after Pentecost, after uh, God, uh, after the Lord Jesus got a hold of Saul, all right, and blinded him and uh, brought him to his knees, and then his name was changed to Paul, right? And he became the greatest church planter ever, right? Um, he gathered up uh, Barnabas and John Mark, the author of this gospel, Mark. And you remember that um, Paul got pretty aggravated at Mark because virtually he had along with him on these missionary journeys a young teenager, maybe middle schooler, maybe in our day, maybe a freshman in high school at best, right? So he was pretty upset with him. He was pretty short, pretty impatient with him. And it's true that Mark was immature. And he said uh, he was whining and complaining about how difficult the journey was and all these things that they were doing. He said, I'm going home. So Paul got really upset with him, right? And, they, and, and, and Barnabas said, hey, you got to be patient with this kid, you know? And uh, Paul said, hey, we don't have time for this, all right? And so they parted ways, all right? Now, what I want you to remember is, all right, that, that Mark, during this time, real time in this gospel, he is, he's a kid. He is virtually a child. I mean, Maybe he was 14 when he was on these missionary journeys with Paul and Barnabas. So how old is he here? He's even younger than that, right? Now, I think it's true that we, uh, we do not motivate, teach, train, and equip our boys to become men um, as soon as we probably should. I mean, you can even think back and listen to your father and your grandpa, uh, your grandfather uh, talk about when they were kids, right? And the responsibilities that they had, right? And when they became a man and did all kinds of things, right? Uh, somehow we've allowed our boys to be, stay boys a lot longer, I think, our culture does until um, even when they should be out of our house, they're living in our basement and, you know... <laughs> I, I don't know, what it, it, it happens like crazy. Now, you, you can criticize that upside and down all you want. The point I'm trying to make is, is that this real time, Mark is uh, just a kid, okay? Now, while, when he's writing this, he is, he's a man, all right? He's a man, and different experiences, and I think he's really, actually, really a sharp guy, in the way he writes this, but it's, look through the lens of um, Peter, okay? Through the lens of Peter, who's a real guy, who's a man's man, I think, all right? I love Peter because I can connect with him so easily, I feel like. He speaks before he thinks. He does before he thinks, right? He engages wholeheartedly. He's passionate. He's out of control sometimes. But it, when, it, when all of that passion, all of that love, all of that loyalty, all of that, all of who he is is harnessed by Jesus, oh my gosh, 
No wonder Jesus, right, one of the first things he does that he's very intentional with after the resurrection, before he ascends, is he goes and he finds Peter because Peter has denied him. Peter is ashamed. He's feeling guilty. He's distraught. He's really messed up. Jesus goes and finds him and restores him because Jesus, Jesus knows in his plan all along is, I'm going to use this guy. He's going to be a big part of the leadership of the future and launching and birthing the church, okay? This is the guy and his scenes and scenarios that were the lens that we're looking through. And in the midst of that, Mark has some, I think, some brilliant literary tactics, so to speak. Now, you can find this scene that we're going to travel through here in verse 11. You can find it in uh, the Gospel of John and Matthew. And they go about it a little bit differently. Obviously, they're all seeing it um, a little different. And they all have different intentions to communicate um, uh, to their specific audience. So Mark, he does some things that the other two don't on purpose. And I love that. And I also love that we're seeing this all through sort of um, the eyes of Peter and the experiences of Peter. So Mark's going to assist us in getting to some really important things. And what he's going to assist us to get to is what true worship's about. Now, I'm going to call it devotion. Devotion to the Lord Jesus and real authentic worship. And he's going to contrast it with what worship shouldn't be and isn't. All right, in these 11 verses. And so when you come to this place in the sacred, uh, in the, I, I'm going to call it a sacred place in the gospel, right? It's, it's really unbelievable. Instead of speeding things up, Mark is really great at speeding things up. He can just move to the next thing just like that. But he takes it and he slows it all down almost to a screeching halt. And instead of focusing on on just hordes of people and, and, and all that that's going on, he brings us into an intimate place with just a few people, just a few, a few individual, and he invites us to connect with these few. And even some, uh, um, he invites us to connect with some, um, some of these people and, and their names are, an, uh, they're, they're anonymous. He's doing that on purpose. Matthew and Mark aren't, or Matthew and John aren't doing that, but Mark wants to draw you in and keep these people anonymous for a reason, I think, all right? And as, as, as time stands still, what will happen, I think if you really engage with the verses, all right, with a story, with this scene, it all leads to Jesus, and he wants us to connect truly to Jesus at the end. And, and so I, I'm trying to suck you in just like he is right here. The story begins on Wednesday of the Passion Week. Okay, on Wednesday, earlier on Sunday, Jesus had made his triumphal, uh, triumphal entry into the city. We traditionally call that Palm Sunday, right? Because they lay the palm branches down and that kind of stuff, right? That was a long time ago in this text, but this is the week here, right? Uh, a long time ago in terms of how you got to preach a message, you know, once a week for months, okay? We're headed that way. But we're past that in the Gospel of Mark. So earlier on Sunday, he, he made his triumphal entry into the city, 
into Jerusalem, right? On Monday, he cursed the fig tree and he cleansed the temple. On Tuesday, which was what we were, uh, where we were last week, he um, had his talk with his guys in the Olive Garden, right? Not the restaurant. You know that place where you can get unlimited breadsticks? And they brush them with buttery garlic and stuff. I really like the Olive Garden. Sort of hungry right now. And I showed you those pictures of those huge olive trees. It's called the Olivet Discourse, right? Because Jesus spent a bunch of time there. He spent a bunch of time in Bethany, which is really close by, this little village. So he's, he's traveling in and out of Jerusalem, right? At night, he's spending the night outside of the city because it's crowded, because there's a lot of upheaval, because he's made these guys angry, right? In the Olivet Discourse, in the talk with his guys at the Olive Garden, right? As he lays this all out, you cannot think of actions or words that are more conf- uh, com- uh, confrontational. Because he talks about the utter destruction, the complete destruction of the temple and how it's going to go away and all those systems and the destruction of Jerusalem. It is controversial, so it shouldn't surprise us that his actions provoke the angry, uh, anger of Israel's leader, leading to his eventual death. Last week, it's described as this unbelievable turmoil, right? It's described as um, the end of the world kind of talk, right? Cosmic total destruction. That's what it's, it, it, it's it, uh, so that uh, Mark captures the language of the Old Testament prophets and all that image, imagery, Right? that it's, it's so dramatic because um, uh, the authors of uh, the prophets and, and I, I suspect even Mark, it's so difficult to describe. You use crazy, cosmic, catastrophic language to describe the destruction of the temple and the city. Okay, so we start in verses one and two. Let's look at verses one and two because here's where the deceptive schemes, which is the first point, emerge. Two days before Passover, the feast, uh, Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. So sometimes the Passover is described as the feast of unleavened bread, all right? Because it's celebrating what? Celebrating the exodus, you know, from the Israel, the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt, right? And you remember the, the, um, the angel of death passes over those that put over the doorpost the mark uh, or the blood of the lamb. And that, so that's what they're celebrating right there, that unbelievable event. So the chief priests, it says, and the experts in the law were trying to find a way to arrest Jesus by stealth. Such great description. And kill him. So these are sneaky schemes. And by the way, they're using Passover as a cover. That's what they want anyway. For they said, not during the feast, so there won't be a riot among the people. So it's two days prior to Passover. All of Israel gathers to commemorate Exodus. Jerusalem is full of hundreds of thousands of pilgrims, just like it goes uh, today, actually. And this holy time as a nation is celebrating the miraculous deliverance 
from slavery. Israel's religious leaders are planning deception and death. It's all happening at, the, at this crazy time. They want to use the feast as a cover to kill Jesus, but Jesus' popularity can't let it happen because uh, so many people, they're afraid it's going to start a riot because people like him, right? So they don't want to do that. They don't want to take immediate action. They're deliberate about waiting until after the festival when everyone's left for home. By the end of the scene, though, what you find is Judas's proposal to them Gives them uh, opportunity. And so, um, so they don't got to wait for the cover. They just jump on it. They throw caution to the wind. So while Israel's leaders are planning Jesus' execu- uh, uh, execution, he's in the midst of intimate fellowship, an intimate fellowship meal in a home in Bethany. Remember, Bethany's just outside there. And Jesus spends a lot of time there, or he has spent a lot of time. You remember, you remember this scene where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, all right? Or other scenes where Mary and Martha, Lazarus is their brother, and um, <clears throat> Martha is scurrying around in the house and saying, you know, she's trying to get all the preparations ready for the meal and all this kind of stuff, right? And, and Mary's at the feet of Jesus worshiping. And she's like, Jesus, you got to do something about this. Wake her up. There's stuff to be done. Get in here in the kitchen and help me kind of thing, right? And then they're upset with Jesus because he didn't come soon enough. You could have saved, you could have saved Lazarus. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're all fired up with him, right? These are, these are his people. These are his loved ones. These are, this is his family, right? And they live in Bethany, right? So uh, this is all what's, what's uh, happening. Look at verses three through um, five now. We're gonna, I just made the second point, fragrant devotion, because here it comes. And what a waste, right? So now, while Jesus was in Bethany at, that, at the house of Simon the leper, right? Reclining at a table or at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of costly um, aromatic oil from pure nard. So it's a stone-carved jar and expensive perfume aromatic oil from pure nard. Now, after breaking open the jar, she poured it on his head. But some who were present indignantly, that's angrily said to one another, why is this weight, why this waste of expensive ointment? It could have been sold for more than 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor. So they spoke angrily to her. So Jesus is looking for a place to stay outside of Jerusalem proper in Bethany. We know this, it's a village just over the hill from the city. It's not far. He can walk there pretty quickly. He finds shelter in the home of Simon the leper. Jesus has probably cured him from leprosy, right? We know this because everybody present would have been violating the Mosaic law. It would have been bad. You know, it can't be in these guys' uh, house or they can't be in your present presence and all these customs and laws and all this kind of stuff, right, about leprosy and um, so just as they begin to fellowship over a meal, so it's probably a, a meal given in his honor to celebrate, heal this guy. <clears throat> Simon's 
obviously really appreciative, right? An unnamed woman enters the house or the home. She's there. She's carrying an alabaster vial of costly perfume. So John identifies her as Mary, Martha's sister, right? And Lazarus, their brother. Now, Mark's keeping this quiet. John can't keep it quiet. So he's got a whole different thing. So he, uh, he reveals her. So Matthew does other things too. So uh, for his own purposes, Mark is doing this. And I, I'm telling you, I think that he wants to, he wants to elevate this event to, be, to make sure it becomes iconic. And so it adds a little mystery to it by doing this. The flask of ointment that could have been sold for nearly a year's wages, it, 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 it was probably a family heirloom. It's really expensive anyway. It doesn't matter. It's Mary's. She takes it. She walks right up behind Jesus. She breaks the neck of the flask in order to pour it out, right? And pours it out, the, the contents on his head, the entire contents. This is an extravagant act of devotion. Now, you know, Linda has nice perfume, and I like it. I buy it for her. In, in fact, um, I, she wears the perfume that I like to smell, especially since I buy it for her. But if you broke it, the bottle, and dumped it on her, oh, my gosh, and it's pretty expensive. If you spilled it anywhere in our house, <laughs> it's going to be, whoa, Right? It smells a big deal. All right? It's a big deal. In fact, it's unfortunate. Maybe it's fortunate. I don't know. You can decide for yourself. But this, about a year and a half ago, I read this really great article about smells and church. And how if you're new and you come into church and it doesn't smell good, that's what remains with you. You're like, oh, our senses and smell and everything. So, so we buy all these freshener things, and we make sure that it smells good around here, and we plug them into the wall. Have you ever got those Glade things, and you plug them in, and it's, it's oil, and, it, and it, it makes it smell good? We, we buy, stick them all around, right? Because I don't want people going, man, it doesn't smell good here, okay? In fact, in fact, you know, people unplug them sometimes. I think the band unplugs them because they're like, hey, it smells like Glade, I don't like it. I don't know if they do it. I don't know if the custodian unplugs it. But somebody unplugged. There's one that's over here, right? Somebody unplugged it, and then they laid it on my table. <laughs> and, then, and then look what it did. It took off the finish. Yeah. You should smell it. I can't get it off. I feel like I smell like Glade now. I can't get it off. I've tried everything, right? Because that stuff is powerful. I love smells, but, but man, dump it on something. Wow. I'm all messed up now. All my stuff's everywhere. We rented uh, Empire High School for 10 years as a congregation, so let you guys know this, a lot of it. And um, you know that donut machine that we have out there? We really love that donut machine, but I'm telling you, this is what that donut machine really started uh, it, its purpose, all right? We want to provide, you know, a good environment and things like that, and people love donuts, but honestly, here's where it came from, all right? Um, that place smelled like high school, and so what we want, uh, the idea was we're going to cook donuts so it smells like donuts. 
Because it smelled like high school. That's all I got to (laughs) say. Right? Smells a big deal. And for a lot of reasons, okay, now we just have the donuts because they taste good. They smell good too. This is all fragrant devotion here. And people are going, what a waste. So, so, oh my gosh, as the contents of this broken flask spill out over the head of Jesus, the fragrance fills the house. You can imagine. So in that festive atmosphere floats the fragrance of costly, wholehearted devotion. Now think of that for a little bit. The woman's action leaves some of Simon's dinner guests aghast. That's a word my mom would use. People were, (gasps) that's what aghast means. But Mark, he doesn't say who they are. Matthew, he can't keep it to himself. He he um, identifies them as the disciples. John further specifies that it was Judas Iscariot. He's the ringleader of the, uh, the ghastly reaction, right? And as the treasurer of the group, he's probably protesting the loudest, And you got to connect the dots, right? Because he doesn't get what he wants here. He's been stealing. He's been misering it away for other things and and taking advantage of the treasury of, you know, of the disciples as they travel around. So he doesn't get what he wants here. So what's he do? He goes and makes another plan and he gets money a different way. You ever think about that? That's that's what's coming here. What a waste, they exclaim. During the festival time, there's probably thousands of poor people within just a few miles of Jerusalem, and it was customary of the time, so it's a part of their culture, for Jews to give gifts to them on the evening of Passover. So thousands probably could have been fed um, for some time with the proceeds from what had just been wasted on Jesus, according to the disciples and Judas. This is big now. Their indignation gives way to open rebuke for the woman's irresponsible actions so they're overcome. And the unnamed woman is subjected to a lengthy tirade, a tirade of humiliation. That's what's happening here. Get your arms around that because here, here we come to the turning point of the scene and, and, and Jesus forcefully de- uh, defends Mary's actions rebuking those who are scolding her. Now, get sucked into this for a minute because we're going to talk about the value and eternal significance right here in in verses 6 through 9. Jesus says in verse 6, or said, leave her alone. Wouldn't that be the coolest thing, having Jesus, having your back like that? Leave her alone. Oh, I, I would just once. Love for Jesus to show up and say, leave him alone, would you? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Why are you bothering her? She's done a good service for me. Verse 7, for you will always have the poor with you. And you can do, for, uh, do good for them whenever you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. Some people might say burial. I tell you the truth. Now, every time Jesus says this, remember, 
When he says, I'm speaking truth, I'm telling you the truth, listen to me, pay attention, this is important, this is a big deal, look what he says right after that. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Jesus rebukes her critics. It's pretty cool. First, they had no sense of, you know, divine priorities. So they don't, they, they're, they're not... They're not paying attention. And before you get all over these guys and say, yeah, you guys are. Mm. Often we don't have a sense of divine priorities either. The issue was not a question of neglecting service to the poor because Jesus speaks about caring for the poor all the time. And earlier he asked the rich young ruler to give up all that he had and, and all that he owned and give it to the poor. You remember that? And he walks away shaking his head. And I've even speculated that that might have been John Mark. So why doesn't he join in and condemn the woman's actions? And so his answer, though, I think is because it suggests he, he's, it, it, it's always appropriate to give to the poor, always. They're always with us. But this is a once-in-a-lifetime moment of devotion when spontaneous extravagance, it, it's, it's more than appropriate here. There's room, by the way, think through this. There's room in the kingdom of God for both the careful stewardship of resources, for the sake of those in need, by the way, and for the spontaneous and uncalculated devotion as well. There's room for both. True discipleship embraces real conservative accounting and also true discipleship embraces reckless exuberance. There's a time to gather and there's a time to throw away. And here is one year's worth of wages all in one little bottle, flask. That's dumped all over Jesus. So Jesus has more to say when it comes to extravagant worship, which is my second point here, right? He has a lot to say to the cost-conscious disciples. It's not just a question of proper priorities. They lack spiritual sensitivity as to what's going on. And I think this happens all the time. All the time. I think we get sucked into the forms of worship and the forms of all these things and not their function. And we lose sight of Jesus all the time. We get distracted all the time by the stuff that we do and the way we're doing it and forget why we're doing it and what it's all about and the function of what we are doing. Everybody's got something to say about those kinds of things. And here's the lesson. These guys do too, and they're spiritually insensitive to what's going on. The woman's expression of devotion had deep symbolic value. She may not have been aware of the full significance of everything that she's doing in the moment. Her actions introduce a dimension that's larger than life, actually. And I don't know, she's totally connecting the dots. This is an ordinary home. She's able to do it, though, with, within her means. She's got the ability to do it, so she does. <laughs> My mom. You know how, you know how like, there's uh, in your house the guest towel? You know, my mom's like, there's no guest towels in my house. She's pretty adamant about it. 
She's like, forget that. I want us to use the good towels. She's like, anti-guest towel. You're going to use the same ones the rest of us use. We get the good ones. I like that. There's no guest towels in our house. His body wouldn't receive the normal care and proper treatment for burial, so. Israel's long-awaited messianic king, right, would soon be delivered to a quick death. Behind this woman's devotion, Jesus saw her divine, or the divine hand of love anointing him for his burial. And she allowed the impulses of her heart to have full expression. She followed her heart, so to speak, right? And her devotion filled the room with a beautiful fragrance that symbolically anticipated the fragrance of Christ's death. A death that would bring salvation to the whole world, a salvation greater than the Exodus. The Passover is celebrating the Exodus? Well, now we don't celebrate the Passover, do we? We, we don't celebrate the 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 Last Supper or that Passover, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus would make the poor to be rich, realizing that the gift of pure nard worth a year's wages paled by comparison. But as Jesus said, she's done what she could. So pure nard, you would get this in India from this plant and it, it's it's powerful, it's potent, it's rare, and it takes a lot of work to fill up a, a, a flask of it. So that's why it's so expensive. So in light of what's taking place in this house, the woman's devotion is entirely appropriate. So appropriate in the moment, it's not anticipated, or it not only anticipated the future, it would be eternally remembered. Think about that. Jesus said that what she had done would be permanently in, uh, recorded in history for every generation, wherever the gospel is preached as an icon of actual, true worship. What Jesus said about her on that evening is being fulfilled today. Why? Because Pastor Brent Ben is preaching and remembering her today and stirring us up by her devotion. And the whole the story stirs us up. Her devotion stirs us up. But before you get too caught up in that, that's important. Mark pushes ahead. All right? Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, he went to the chief priests to betray Jesus into their hands. And when they heard this, they were delighted and promised to give him money. <laughs> so Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray him. So in the first scene, Jesus spoke about the opp opportune time for devotion. His enemies are seeking an opportunity to betray him and kill him. The leader of the pack is the same one who earlier had rebuked Mary for wasting expensive perfume on Jesus. So an intimate disciple now, he's... He's intimate. He knows Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. Think of that for a minute. 
That person's going to betray Jesus to the chief priest, and the offering brings gladness to those in authority, and the deal is sealed with money. So Judas is disgusted with the waste, so he finds another way to go steal money, to get money. Oh, he's driven by it. Devotion is bracketed by hate on the one hand and betrayal on the other. It's sandwiched in there. Money, devotion, and opportunity link the three scenes together. Is this not crazy? This is why people hate talking about money in church. You know why? Because you get right to it, don't you? What drives everything? There's a reason why we use that cultural phrase when something bad's going on and it doesn't smell right. We say, follow the money. That'll lead you to what the real deal is, right? You can say the same thing in church in the hearts of Christ followers too. And God is brilliant in the way that he utilizes all of this and how he connects it to worship. In the first case, a year's wages um, uh, is poured out over the head of Jesus in an act of devotion, and Jesus applauds it as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. In the second those who are, devo- who are devoted to themselves, right, they, they, they will waste a life in order to get rich. And in the first case, the act of devotion is, is, is objected to on behalf of the poor. And in the second, the poor, they're not even mentioned. Amazing how the poor are not even mentioned. So the story leaves us with one question. How do we worship? Three expressions are listed here. Those of Jesus' enemies, his disciples, and the unnamed woman. All three, all right? So how do we worship? Here's the first one. It's self-devotion, Jesus' enemies. So sadly, Jesus' enemies miss everything that is true about worship. I would say most people do. They're blinded by paranoia of losing control. They lose sight of God in the Passover of all places. And yet the greater Passover is about to be enacted and they refuse to yield control to the new king and yet they are surprisingly successful in their deceptive scheme. And the irony is that they get what they want and they don't benefit from it. We do this all the time. Don't think that you can't be in this first category. We can all be here because we like to be in control. And we don't like losing control. And because we're in control, we, we truly lose sight. And, and, and most of the time, when you get what you want, you don't actually get what you want. Right? How often does that happen to you? <clears throat> does this scenario describe your life? It, don't think that it can't. You may have been attending church events your whole life, but never given over control of your life to the king. You may be successful in all your plans, but in the end, you're a pawn, never benefiting from what God overrules in your life. He overrules things all the time, and we stiff arm him and say, no, not that. Everything but that. And that kind of worship is given no word of correction, only what? You notice Jesus doesn't say really a word about this. It's silence. That's why the silent treatment is so painful and why you should never practice it in your marriage. 
it's the, the silence, silent consequences of being given over to what you've already predetermined in your heart. It even pays the way to make you successful in your deception and idolatry so, so that when your demise comes, it's, it's like a public testimony. <clears throat> Did your parents ever do this where they're like, hey, you shouldn't do that. It's going to turn out like this. And then you're like not having it. And then they go, okay. And then they let you crash and burn. It's like that's happened, but Jesus doesn't go, I told you. <laughs> he just lets it speak for itself, right? Judas, 30 pieces of silver. How about devotion that is cold and calculated? Oh, that's not us. You know, these are his disciples. That can't be us. The disciples represent a kind of worship that appears responsible and good, but underneath it's cold. It's calculating. They got the calculator out. With no real love, no emotion, worship can be reduced to just responsible duty, right? You may give, serve, care for the poor with a self-imposed diligence. I'm really diligent, but we're behaving like accountants that lack spiritual sensitivity, and that kind of cold worship is challenging and rebuked, just like Cain. By the way, you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain was rebuked by God for offering his creator a calculated tip, basically, instead of the best of what he had, the first fruits like Abel. And Cain didn't repent, and his decision led to an agonizing exile. Judas did not repent, and his decisions and his actions led to a horrifying suicide. How about dying devotion? Look at uh, the next one, the unnamed woman. In contrast to these two is the woman, Mary. We know it's Mary, the one who earlier had sat down at the feet of Jesus and re rebuked by Martha, right, her sister, for her lack of service. And now it's driven by spontaneous imp uh, internal impulses to give the best that she had. This was her heart all the time. Her devotion was extravagant, even extraordinary by human terms, but appropriate. Maybe modest in divine terms, I don't know. But she's done what she could and what she, uh, what she, with what she had. And by following the impulses of her heart, she infused this ordinary home with worship that's larger than life. True devotion and worship. Simon invited Jesus to a supper of, of appreciation. He had no idea that this meal would smell the way it, uh, it did. This fragrance that would bring salvation uh, to the end, end of the earth for, uh, for all time. <laughs> Just once in your life, in my life, just once, ask the Lord to allow this to happen to you. Make sure you're aware, though, that when people are truly encountering Jesus and allow your heart to be drawn into devotion, take advantage of the opportunity, maybe. Take advantage. Maybe you'll give an offering whose scent will fill up a house. You'll turn uh, somebody's home into a temple of worship. You may be rebuked for being irresponsible, and people might go, that's such a waste. But I think we should do what we can, just like she did what she could. So there's three expressions of worship that Mark sets in clear contrast 
Let's be like the woman. That's the lesson. Let's be like the woman. There's one more thing that we should neglect. The, you got to complete the text. What was it that Jesus learned in his, in, in, in this in, incident? What did Jesus learn? Have you thought about that? Jesus was the recipient of all three expressions of worship. I think that's the way you're supposed to look at this. So you can learn from his point of view that true expressions of love are birthed in the middle of hate. Is there a lot of hate going on in the world that we live in? There's a lot of evil stuff. There's a lot of really ugly things. The two go hand in hand. Love doesn't grow in the middle of nice things going on. So think about that for a minute. Maybe for us, the people that we're investing in most may bring us hurt while the unexpected outsider might bring us a surprise of real joy, but here it comes, like Jesus, okay, like Jesus, we have to anchor our hope in something, anchor our hope in the absolute sovereignty of God, that he's in control of all of this. We have to trust and anchor that he's absolutely in control of our government, of of our countries, of our border, of our elections, of the people uh, all around us, of this church, of everything. He's in control of all of it. He's sovereignly in control. And the God that we are worshiping that is in control of all of this, it is his constant practice to work out his highest good in the midst of all of this depraved evil. That's all around us. And that is a God who is worthy of our devotion. That's who we're worshiping, our devotion. What do you have? What's your, (laughs) I was going to say, what's your flask full of? (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't say it that way. But what about your flasks? What, you know, those things that you have, that you're holding on to, that you've inherited, that you're saving, that are valuable, no doubt. That can be good for all kinds of purposes. What do you got that you've been like afraid of pouring all over Jesus? Bow your head with me. Thank you, Lord, for these moments like this. This is really powerful, this worship. We pray that we would be like the woman. Teach us to be like the woman, worship and be devoted like the woman. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.